Blog Talk Radio. Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at Mike Roth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. This is Mike Roth. Thank you, Scott. Today's guest will be Benedict Lecca, the curator of European painting and sculpture at the Cincinnati Art Museum. Benedict will be with us in a moment. So how long have you been at at the Art Museum? Uh, Nearly five years. Uh, Five years in June. Okay, so when you got there, they still had the... uh, in front of uh, hall, the uh, Egyptian uh, yes. exhibits in the uh, in the glass cases, right? Which led back to the atrium. Uh, yes. Why don't you tell everyone who's listening what you've done to that front hallway because it's just phenomenal. Uh, that is uh, a uh, a design that was conceived by our director Aaron Betsky, and uh, it is meant to highlight. Iconic pieces from the collection. Mm-hmm. And so it gathers together important works from the collection, presumably so that people can uh, commune with the object and seek out other like objects somewhere else in the collection. Right, right. Well, it, it, it was just a dramatic transformation uh, for me because what you see when you walk in is a... Uh, a series of uh, curtained off, uh, darkened viewing areas for each one of the uh, art pieces. Uh, and the art piece is uh, properly highlighted and, uh, and can be viewed under uh, what I thought was a really appropriate lighting for each piece. Right. Uh, it's part of uh, we're always reinstalling, uh, perfecting, changing, uh, altering, presenting anew various pieces and uh, aspects of the collection that is all in a day's work at an art museum. You want to try to keep the presentation uh, shifting and fresh and live. Oh, it definitely so, was um, new yeah. and fresh. Well, you know, you uh, there's more than one way, one way to skin a cat. So, uh, you know, there there's a con- contextual approach where you bring like objects around a, a piece. There's sometimes you want to isolate it, uh, emphasize it, underline it, have people understand its great importance by by virtue of it being alone as opposed to surrounded by other objects. 
So, um, as you know, uh, since you noticed, uh, the presentation is of capital importance, and how you how you uh, welcome the visitor and what's available to show them and how you show it to them is is part of uh, what we do at the art museum. It was dramatic and, and, and a wonderful improvement. Uh, and at the front of that area, as you're walking through on the left and the right, there were two areas which have an even uh, more emphasis with uh, a piece of art behind something that looks like a mirrored wall, which is really a, a one-way mirror. This is true, yes. We have the mummy on one side and a large-scale photograph um, and I, the artist's name escapes me, but uh, a very notable, I believe, German contemporary photographer. Right, right. Uh, when you turned around after looking at the mummy and you looked through the one-way mirror, you had the skeleton x-ray of the mummy. Right. I thought that was a, a, an exceedingly good move. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's the mummy is always a big hit with the kids and the school children, and so it's important to keep it out and have people be able to look at it. Um, so that that's that's the the reason. Right, right. But the, the the whole way it was set up was so much better than the old way. Uh, sure. Uh, it was like a either a first glance uh, entry or a. Uh, as you're exiting the the art museum, something just extra special because you don't know what's in, what's in that little that little um, room on the left or the right. We always welcome that kind of enthusiastic response. Yeah, so I mean that's good you, that you felt that way. And you, and you have a couple of really good uh, exhibits uh, going on at the art museum now. Uh, have we the, have three even. Uh, well, we have let's the see. Nick Cave sound suits. He's a contemporary African American artist. He creates these. Uh, suits that some of them can be worn where it is made of various fabrics and objects and there is uh, a performance that can be tied to the suit. You know, you can have either the artist or one of his uh, co-workers or colleagues having donned the suit and jumping up and down so that, you know, rustling hair and, and various beadwork and objects rattle around. So it creates the sort of... Um, Live action art piece in a way. Well, uh, so we have uh, we have them all sprinkled around the museum uh, in various galleries. Uh, we also have an outstanding exhibition of Picasso prints mm -hmm. from our permanent collection. We're right. rich in, in works on paper, and uh, Kristen Spangenberg, our curator of um, uh, prints. Uh, has put together a very rich selection of um, prints created by Pablo Picasso. We, again, Picasso doesn't need much of an introduction, one of the seminal artists of the 20th century. You know, he, not only was he a great painter, but he, he um, you know, he undertook a, a lifelong engagement with printmaking and with drawing. And so these are very important works, and to have them all laid out um, in this uh, very rich presentation uh, is a special thing indeed. And it's important to keep in mind, of course, as I mentioned, that they're all from our permanent collection. 
And finally, there's the exhibition that I've put together, the Monet paintings, which is right adjacent to the Picasso print show. So, yeah, that's, that's that was just beautiful the way you uh, we walked in from the middle of the Picasso uh, prints into the Monet uh, exhibit under the uh, I call it a, that was a doily uh, ceiling. It is uh, laser cut vinyl. Because, laser cut uh, vinyl. Yeah, you know, when Monet, Monet, born in 1840, dies in 1926, so has a very, very long career. In the 20s, when he is a very old man in his 80s, he um, completes a series of giant water lily paintings that are about 10 feet tall and 20 feet across. Right, really amazing paintings, and you have it in an appropriately sized room. Well, uh, that's always a consideration, you know, how you present pieces, and you don't want them too tightly packed. You you want lots of, and yet you don't want them, of course, to, to spread apart. Um, so, yes, um, Monet creates these giant water lily paintings, uh, and that entryway, when, when when he dies in 26, he had been by that time convinced by a friend who happened to be um, uh, Georges Clemenceau, the prime minister of France at the time. He convinced an aged Monet to donate these great master cycles of uh, water lilies to the French state. So uh, in 27 they were given, and very soon after a small building called the Orangerie, um, it's part of the Orange Garden in the Tuileries, uh, and it is an egg-shaped, more or less, an oval-shaped room where you enter, and then you're surrounded by these giant water lily paintings. Now here's the here's the connection to what you described in the entry of our show, which is this laser-cut vinyl, and that is that Monet was very specific about the instructions that he gave to create the space in Paris. And on either uh, on the entryway, you have what's called a vestibule, a small room, all white, that uh, is meant to be the sort of transitional space where you enter it and you leave the everyday behind and you enter... You you go through this vestibule, which is all white, and then you finally uh, enter into this other world, which is the garden. Right. So right. Um, I happen to have in my papers a little brochure that they dole out to the tur- tourists, and so they had a. Um, so our uh, ace young designer uh, Eli Miners picked up on that and wanted to really emphasize it um, to again have people understand when they enter the space or even the entryway and leading up to the space that they are entering this very special uh, site of um, what the French call this, a site of memory. Right. Well, it certainly it certainly gave a mood to that exhibit unlike anything uh, I had ever experienced at the Cincinnati Art Museum, uh, frankly, any other art museum uh, that, that really complemented the exhibit's of Monet's works that you had there. Well, uh, what it does, you know, again, it, it, it sets up a, a a sort of context, which is one of, uh, you know, flora, flowers, um, the way that we have the light coursing through that, uh, that gives this kind of dappled light effect, which the Impressionists were well known for. So it, it, it complements, and that's right. But uh, the important thing, of course, is the 12 paintings that we have in the show. Um, oh, 
Yeah, some three wonderful fabulous, paintings. Yeah, three fabulous early ones, two footbridges, four water lilies, um, 21 feet of wisterias. We have three oversized wisteria panels and a very late weeping willow from Columbus, which is a very good painting. So it is important to keep in mind that um, all 12 paintings are first-tier masterpieces. Uh, but the point I want to make is that four out of the 12 are from Ohio collections, and that's something I always mention during the guided visits that I give. Um, I think it one can feel very good as an Ohioan to know that there are some outstanding Monet paintings in the state of Ohio. So we've tried we'll take, to, you know... Let's, t- let's take, a sh- take a short break here, uh, and Benedict, and then we'll be back in about a minute or so. Great. Hello, this is Bob Anoni with Sandler Training, here to talk to you about rule number one. You have to learn to fail to win. Um, Think about learning how to walk or riding a bike. When you first started to learn how to walk, of course, you fell. And you fell again, you fell again, but eventually you mastered the art of walking. Same thing with riding a bike or driving a car or making cold calls or starting up a business. Henry Ford failed four times before he succeeded. Thomas Edison worked almost 10 years on the light bulb before he succeeded. They weren't failures, but they were willing to risk failure to find out what they were truly capable of achieving. At Sandler, we ask you to learn from your failures and understand that the process is failing, not you as a person. You are not a failure the process that you are using isn't apparently the right one to produce the results that you're trying to produce. So if the cold call isn't going well, we'd ask you to examine the sales process that you're using. Don't get discouraged if your sales call doesn't go well. Learn from it. So again, Sandler rule number one is you have to be willing to fail and risk failure in order to win to find out what you're truly capable of achieving. Well, this is Mike Roth, and I'm back with uh, Benedict from the Art Museum. Yes. Uh, I wanted to talk for a couple of minutes about those uh, two bridges you have. It, it seemed like you had a uh, an early Japanese uh, bridge in the uh, Water Lily Garden, which was pretty uh, pretty easy to deal with up close. And then the the second one must have been done much later in his life. Is that right? Yes, it is. In fact, that pairing is very, very interesting because it brings together, first of all, on the left, um, the what is widely believed to be the earliest footbridge that Monet ever painted around 1895. Mm. And the one on the right that uh, you rightly point out is, you know, more challenging as an image for us, uh, is a picture that he worked over till the very end of his life. He, you know, if you notice on the label, it says 1918 to 26. So, over the course of eight years, he at times returned to it and altered it. 
and it is a fascinating contrast because on one hand, the, f the one on the left is a very conventional image about a mirrored surface and a bridge over a pond, and easy it, to see, know, easy to see up close. Yeah, and it you know it 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 it's it exemplifies you know a a sort of rational ordered symmetrical composition of the landscape it is painted in these sort of pastel like colors that very knowingly reference 18th century precedents and but when you get to the other one of course couldn't be more different in fact wow it, it was, it's really it was... it's the same motif it's the same footbridge but it's no longer really about the footbridge it's really about monet himself and i like to think of it as a sort of self-portrait of the artist because when an artist does that when he spackles on the paint in this very thick demonstrative gestural paint handling it um it's almost dark it's name, yeah i mean it you know it's it's an invitation for you, the viewer, to pay attention to this process. He's like, look at me and the marks that I'm making and this hard work that I'm doing in creating this image. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so if you think about the old adage that every painting is a self-portrait of the artist, um, again, you know, when you think about self-portraiture itself, it's very much rooted in the self-portrait. Um, when Rembrandt, for example, begins to paint portraits, he doesn't pay a sitter. He looks in the mirror and paints his own face. And so... Again, that old adage that every painting is a self-portrait of the artist. And when you look at a painting and it's a two-dimensional object that's framed, that hangs on the wall, when it depicts a mirrored surface, well, that begins to sound an awful lot like a mirror itself. Mm -hmm. okay? And finally, if you look, if you remember, Mike, if you look at the comparison of those two paintings, that kind of, you know, very thick surface picks up the light in a very different way than the other picture. So... All of those associations Monet is working over and keenly aware of. So, well, that's, uh, for me, the uh, the uh, the first Japanese bridge that he did on the left uh, was easy to deal with up close, um, but the, the the much darker one, the later one, uh, I frankly was a lot happier with as a painting when I was on on the far end of the room, maybe forty feet away from it. That's when it hit me. Well, you know, all of these paintings uh, repay close-looking, and I think it's always helpful to look closely, move back, move further back, come back and look again, and just really look hard. Yeah, I mean, because, there's, a, there's uh, a lot in that second painting. Uh, there is. Uh, you know, uh, it's uh, just in the handling, for one, and the, the color scheme. It challenges us in a way because we're so conditioned as mu American museum goers to think of Monet and Impressionism as all sunshine and flowers, and mm -hmm. that picture is very brooding and and uh, you know charged in in this weird symbolic way. Um, yeah, kind of dark. Yeah, so so that was helpful. And if you remember, in the way that the exhibition is laid out, I have those two very late pictures, the green whipping, weeping willow from um, Columbus and that late footbridge from Philadelphia right in the corner so that when people approach that corner, they really see um, that lesser-known aspect of late Monet, which is this very worked-over paint surface, these very dramatic colors and compositions. Um mm -hmm. And that's what we wanted to do. Yeah, let's talk for a second about the uh, the stereo uh, pictures that you had uh, on the right hand wall of the, the exhibit hall. Uh, they were also exceptionally large. 
Yes. And uh, uh, now, because maybe it's just me, but I, I like the view of those, again, from a greater distance than a closer distance. Well, um, again, you know, these pictures demand both kinds of looking. Um, if you look at that giant wisteria, it's painted in this very gestural and demonstrative, um, calligraphic even, uh, very pasty, and, and um, so it wants you to look closely and appreciate the, the flourishes with the paint that Monet is laying down on the canvas. Um, that doesn't preclude you moving back and feeling more of the illusion, which is this giant garland of wisterias that um, is the way that I explain it in these visits that I give is that it's a, a garland of wisterias that is fluttering in blue air above blue water to the point where you can't be sure if you're seeing air or water. If you look in the yeah, lower that, right hand corner that, that those really lateral difficult. strokes yeah, and, and so you know again he, he is purposefully keeping it open he wants you to he wants to disorient you at one level and he wants you to he wants to challenge you to have you be attentive to to the illusion to the space to your reaction to your positioning uh in relation to the illusion as it's given to you in the painting uh all of those things so um there's no right way to look at these i think you want to look at them close middle and far away every right. which way you can think of it, it was kind of uh, some of the others were were kind of ambiguous as to where the the line between the uh, the sky and the water was. Right, and again, it's it's very tricky when you look at that garland. It is drooping down, but if you know mm -hmm. if you've been to Giverny, you know that those wisterias wrap around an armature that is convex that bulges out bulbously and mm -hmm. so if you're seeing it as you are looking at that painting then maybe you're seeing the garland as a reflection in the water right and yet when you look at it even though it's quite sketchily handled it's not partial it's not you know it's all there it's quite so i think it's important there to think about its original purpose that that series of paintings was meant to hang above the giant water lilies at the Orangerie. So clearly he wanted to uh, depict a garland, a decorative garland, as you might find it uh, in, you know, in usual representations. Good. We're going to take a short break, and uh, we're going to be back and talk about those uh, dramatic uh, suits that we have in the museum. Sure. sure. Hi, I'm Carl Graff with Sailor Training, and I'm here to talk about Sailor Rule Number Two: Don't spill your candy in the lobby. So, what does a spilled box of candy got to do with the sales call? Everything. When you go on a sales call, you take your box of candy. Your box of candy is your knowledge, your expertise. And salespeople are so anxious to open and spill their candy. When a prospect shares a concern that might be able to be addressed by your product and services, 
the salesperson launches into presentation mode, highlighting their features and benefits. They might throw in a third-party testimonial or two for good measure, candy, candy, and more candy. While there's time to share your candy, of course, it's during the formal presentation demonstration process review. And that's only if you and the prospect together have truly understand the issues they're trying to resolve. In the initial phase of the sales call, leave the candy in the box. Your task is to fully understand the prospect situation. You have to make sure that you uncover the prospect's issues before you make your presentation. During the initial phase of the sales call, the candy must remain in the box. Your task is to uncover the prospect's uh, issues. Your task is to ask questions to uncover the problems that need to be addressed or the goals that need to be achieved. Your task is to truly identify if your products and services will truly address and help the prospect. Your task is to leave the candy in the box. If you're routinely dropping off material, information, marketing material without truly understanding the prospect's buying motives, then you're creating the habit of spilling your candy in the lobby. Ask yourself this question. If they, if they have your information, if they have your pricing, do they really ever need to talk to you again? Ask yourself, would they ever take your information and shop your competitors? Get enough facts to fully understand the opportunity. And if you get far enough through the development cycle to make a presentation, then open your box of candy. Yes, you should and can help the prospect. But the best way to help them early on in the process is to ask them questions, talk as little as possible, and get them to talk as much as possible. Your task is to gather the information, not dispense it, and save the box of candy for later. Well, this is Mike Roth on Cincinnati Business Talk. I should be back with uh, Benedict from the Art Museum. Okay. Okay. Isn't it unusual to have three major art exhibits going on at the same time at the Art Museum? It is true, normally, that one might find maybe two major ones and some smaller right. exhibits, but uh, oh. it just so happens that these three came together as as they are now, and uh, we're thrilled at the attendance that has been coming forth and, and, and seeing all these things that we've got going, sure. Yeah, so my wife and I went expecting to see the Monet and expecting to see the Picasso, but we didn't expect to see the third, which really was unbelievable because these let me describe the suits that this artist his name is Nick Cave Nick Cave yeah uh, they're usually about nine feet tall sometimes they're animals like bears or beavers they're all covered in I guess he said used fabrics or used hair various fabrics and and you know knittings and blankets and but, but and extremely hair. brightly colored and large yeah. and not all in the same gallery. What I especially loved were the green lines along the uh, art museum floor from uh, exhibit area one into another hall where he had another of, of his uh, suits on display. Somehow we missed the uh, the first room, I guess that down on the first floor opposite the cafe where you had the, the films going of, of, of people actually in them and making sounds with the suits. Right. Uh, uh, the... 
the, the gathering that we have at the museum right now is, uh, I believe, the largest gathering of Nick Cave sound suits ever put together. So, how many years uh, has he been doing these suits? You know, I'm sorry to say I don't know. I mean, keep in mind, I'm the curator of European painting, sculpture, and drawings, and this is a contemporary artist, so I'm not the best person to be discussing the pieces, I'll be honest. But uh, it's so one of his trademarks. Clearly, he's he's well-known for these suits, and so it's he's been doing it for a number of years. But it is, um, we, we you know, we have a very, very strong presentation, and, and I believe there's 43, all told, sprinkled around the museum. So we're inviting people to... As you mentioned, follow those green steps so that they can see the variety and the various materials that he uses to create these things. And they are impressive. I mean, if you see across from the cafe the videos that we have, mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, and you can really see how they they really appeal to the senses, very much like Monet at the end of the day, um, mm -hmm. with sound and, and textures and colors. Um, right. And so there's there's a certain energy when you see when you see them being used and danced in and and so uh, it, it is very impressive. Right, right. It's a it's a really large body of work. Uh, but the other thing it did for the art museum and it did for me is it forced us to walk into many of the galleries which we may have uh, not bothered to walk into since we came. Primarily to see the Monets and the uh, Picassos. Well, it's always going to be tough when you're an artist when you're competing against Monet and Picasso. So, <laughs> uh, though you know, those but you have a whole lot of other good, good material in the museum, and the uh, well, the placement of the pieces around the museum. Uh, well, we have an outstanding permanent collection that has some, uh, you know, great American art. Some decorative arts, Rookwood, uh, the Cincinnati Wing, Cincinnati Art, um, outstanding um, European pictures under my care, um, mm -hmm. Asian and Near Eastern. So we're an encyclopedic museum, and so uh, it's reflected in the the wide ranging uh, objects that we have. Right. right. How many, you know how many museum has been expanded since it was first built? I, I'm sorry, I couldn't understand the question. How many times has the museum been expanded since it for, was first built? Uh, at least three times. Uh, I think there was the uh, the the Hannah Wing in the the twenties. If I, I mean, you know, I'll I, I should know this better, but there's been several building campaigns in in the twenties and in the sixties, uh, and then in the eighties, I believe. Um, and again, that's part of being a museum. You're constantly um, rearranging, seeing if you can find extra space. Uh, as you know, we're restoring the art academy um, and I don't creating, construction. <laughs> creating, yeah. Uh, What's going to go in there? Well, it's going to be all the curatorial offices in the library and a, a terrace area upstairs, uh, up at the top that will give a fabulous view of the city down below. And all where I am currently, uh, that is the curatorial area as it is right now, will be turned into extra gallery space eventually. Okay, so you're going to use the old Art Academy building uh, to move the administrative offices to get more space in the museum itself. Right. Okay, that seems a good idea. Uh, what do you think the possibilities of, of 
of growing the, the collection of uh, European art or, or, or sculpture are? Well, um, I'm always looking. Um, we have an outstanding collection, so we need to get pieces that are equal to what we already have. Uh, those can be very, very pricey. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to buy a few things. Um, a plaster bust by Oudon, a French 18th century sculptor, arguably the most famous one, of the um, of Denis Diderot, the encyclopédiste. Uh, I bought a painting by uh, Edouard Villard uh, from 1917, an interior scene, uh, two neoclassic landscapes by a man named Boisselier, who uh, was a lesser-known French artist, but of very high quality. Of uh, It's a pendant pair of views of Tivoli, that touchstone site, uh, right outside of Rome, where many landscapists went to uh, paint. And uh, what else? I just recently bought a painting by a man named Eugène Marion, who's uh, very little known, but he painted quite an interesting picture of a heating works uh, it was shown at the Salon of 1886 in Paris. Um, we got a very good price on it, and um, it helps us tell a fuller story of, of 19th century France. Mm -hmm. So uh, all that to say is that um, I'm always looking and always looking to supplement the collection. That's part of my job. Well, that's good. We'll come back with a couple more questions after this break. Hi, I'm Mike Crandall with Sandler Training, here to talk to you about Sandler Rule number three, no mutual mystification. So what does it mean? Well, let me ask. Have you ever entered into a sales call with an expectation that it was going to end one way and then to find out that it did not end that way, but another way, bad or good? Or have you ever been in a meeting with an expectation of what was going to transpire only to find out that that isn't actually what transpired? Both of those are examples of where there was mutual mystification. In general, you can think of mutual mystification as any time when two parties have different expectations and don't take the time to clarify them in advance of the interaction. It's our job as sales professionals to be intentional about finding out what expectations people have, to define phrases and terms in advance that might be misunderstood, to tie up any loose ends, also to make sure that all parties are in sync with what has happened as well as what will happen. I like to say this is summed up by one of my favorite phrases. The source of all the world's frustration is unfulfilled expectation. Well, this is Mike Roth at Cincinnati uh, Business Talk uh, with uh, Benedict from the Cincinnati Art Museum. Are you still with us, Benedict? Yes, I am. Uh, that, that worked great that time. Uh, let's go back uh, to the Monet exhibit for a moment, if we could, and and tell us a little bit about how that that exhibit uh, came to be, because you put together artwork that 
came from multiple sources. And how long yes. did it take to do that? Uh, oh, I'll told about two years to conceive of the show and to get all of the pictures that I needed. Um, mm. You know, that's part of how one puts these exhibitions together. You come up with a theme. You have an ideal list of pictures that illustrate the theme for the public. Then you go and uh, ask around to the people who own the paintings, and you hope that they're going to cooperate and loan you the pictures. Now, there's you know a number of reasons why they wouldn't. Um, condition: some of these pictures are too fragile to travel. Uh, stipulations well, from a donor. Yeah, they're old. Yeah, uh, but some are you know, paint on canvas is remarkably durable. And so, um, sometimes pictures are, uh, st you know, as I mentioned, stipulations to the donor that prevent them being loaned, or else they've been committed to another exhibition. So, um, in this case, I did some dealing with various museums, uh, Dayton, Columbus, Philadelphia, uh, Denver, and, uh, and again, these are by and large people that I know that are colleagues in other museums and um, we came to an agreement that we could swap some pictures. I mean one of the, the things that enabled me to bring this collection together was of course that none of these pictures are traveling to another venue. This exhibition isn't traveling. It's just strictly 90 days in Cincinnati. So it's a it's very much easier to to convince people you know the the reality of it is that people are not inclined to loan their Monets, as you can imagine. No, just Private collectors are loath to not have them on their walls. Other museums aren't all that keen to loan them to you because they're inevitably very popular with the public, so they want their Monets there. Okay. Um, so it really plays, uh, it really turns on, on personal relationships, on deals on the substance of the exhibition thematic. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've got a strong theme that people feel is worthwhile, they're they're more likely to cooperate. Uh, the problem with Monet, of course, is that often um, some of these smaller exhibitions, or even larger ones for that matter, um, are very flimsy as far as any kind of substance. It's just an, uh, a pretext to bring together a number of Monets. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, which brings me to the theme of our show, which uh, my show is uh, conceived of as a, a sort of counterpoint to the larger exhibitions that one normally is accustomed to uh, treating Monet. Uh, the example that I give, of course, is the very large retrospective of Monet that uh, took place in Paris last year. Uh, I can't remember how many paintings. There must have been at least 150 paintings and artworks. I mean, it wow. was massive. Um, we don't have the research, you know, first of all, it's impossible to do that, except in France, where um, many of the Monets are, of course, uh, in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, we, uh, you know, me and, and the, the museum as a, as a philosophy, we're, we're trying to be savvier, smarter. Um, these shows are... They're, at the end of the day, they're oftentimes just overkill. There's too much. And so 
I've had some success in identifying more circumscribed themes that allow us entry into the body of work like like, like Monet. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, the theme is reflection. Reflection as a motif, as a highlight or a glimmer of rushing silvery waters on, on the river surface. Reflection as thinking. Reflection as a metaphor for Monet's late career in Giverny, which is characterized by a very self-conscious, self-critical practice. Mm-hmm. And when an artist is working very self-consciously and, and, and paying attention to what he's doing and how he's doing it, he is in turn inviting you, the viewer, to think consciously and thoughtfully and reflectively about his paintings. And the Monet so show all goes on until when? May 13th. May 13th. So people do have some time to get out to the art museum. Yes, and I want to emphasize that we are open on Friday evenings late till 9 o'clock. So um, normally the museum closes at 5 o'clock, but uh, it will be open every Friday through the 27th of April. That's Um, great. So the entire month of April. This month of April, um, Friday nights will be available at the Art Museum. And the Picasso show goes on until when also? Uh, I think it closes end of April. You'll have to excuse me. I don't know the exact dates of that. Uh, It opened a little bit before mine, so I presume it's going to close maybe end of April, early May. Okay. So people still have plenty of time to get out to the Art Museum to see something uh, truly unique here in Cincinnati. We'll take a... uh, a short break, and we'll, when we come back, we'll talk about uh, the future of the art museum. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. Many salespeople tell us business was really easy. They likened it to gathering fruit in an orchard full of ripe trees. They gathered the low-hanging fruit. They had to get baskets to pick up the fruit that was already fallen. They never had to climb a tree. They worked this way for 10 or 15 years. Given the strong economy, this was no problem. What are you hearing now? The economy has slowed down. Salespeople are competing on price. There's still business now, but salespeople have to work harder. The fruit has not fallen from the tree, and there's no low-hanging fruit. The fruit is there, but it's higher up in the tree. The problem is their salespeople have forgotten how to climb. Do your salespeople know how to climb? If you or your team needs to learn how to climb through and up out of tough economic times, call me, Mike Roth, at 513 646-6523 or check our website at rothconsulting.net Hi, I'm Mike Crandall with Sandler Training here to talk to you about Sandler Rule number three no mutual mystification so what does it mean? Well, let me ask, have you ever entered into a sales call with an expectation that it was going to end one way and then to find out that it did not end that way, but another way, bad or good? Or have you ever been in a meeting with an expectation of what was going to transpire only to find out that that isn't actually what transpired? Both of those are examples of where there was mutual mystification. In general, you can think of mutual mystification as any time when two parties have different expectations and don't take the time to clarify them in advance of the interaction. It's our job as sales professionals to be intentional about finding out what expectations people have, to define phrases and terms in advance that might be misunderstood, 
to tie up any loose ends, also to make sure that all parties are in sync with what has happened as well as what will happen. I like to say this is summed up by one of my favorite phrases. The source of all the world's frustration is unfulfilled expectation. Well, this is Mike Roth uh, with Sandler Training. Uh, Benedict, are you back with us? Yes, I am. Let's uh, let's take a moment and talk about what you know about the future of the art museum. What are we going to be seeing in the rest of uh, 2012 after uh, Monet? Well, Monet. After Monet, you've got uh, the summer. Of course, we have the World Choir Games, and we're putting on a show of our uh, instrument collection, musical instrument collection, that has now been established to be one of the important repositories here in Cincinnati of um, historic musical instruments, uh, second only to the, to the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Really? And so uh, we uh, have our restoration team and installation people having worked very hard to put together all the mounts and the presentation of a selection of uh, instruments from the collection that will is aimed to correspond to the influx of musicians and singers that we're going to see here in Cincinnati over the summer. Then in the fall, it's going to be a fall devoted to photography. Uh, we have um, Photo Focus, which is a citywide um, uh, the, the French word is manifestation uh, of um, just celebrating photography and uh, exhibitions and lectures and private galleries all around town. Uh, we'll have the um, uh, a show of photographs by um, Herb Ritz, the celebrity pho photographer from Los Angeles. And mm. in the spring, it will be a retrospective exhibition devoted to the contemporary photographer James Welling. So okay. uh, that's what we have to offer to uh, our um, members and our public uh, over the course of the summer and the next fall and then that following spring. That sounds exciting. The uh, musical instruments, I, I, I've seen a small collection of the musical instruments along one hall in the museum on the second floor. Is the collection much larger than that? Yes. Uh, many of the pieces, though, need to be conserved. But it it reminds me a lot, in a way, it's one of those discoveries. Um, it's a lot like the African material that we have at the Art Museum, um, of very, very high quality, one of the earliest collections put together by an American. Well, well an American. Uh, he was German, but uh, it's one of the early collections in America of African material. And... Um, Maybe it can be attributed to um, the way the, the mercantile history of Cincinnati, where people uh, went far and wide in the late 19th century uh, and came back uh, with with a slew of different objects. So um, that's why, again, we have this fine collection of instruments and the African material. Um, yeah, so that it should be should be very nice. A lot of these things they're amazing. I've been watching the conservators and the 
uh, installation um, people create the mounts. I mean, a lot of these things are very complex to mount and present to the public, and they're amazing. I mean, it's some of the strangest things you've ever seen made of. Well, I can't, I can't wait to see it. Being it, having been a high school uh, musician myself, I'd like love to see this. I'm definitely going to get there. What did you play? I I played trombone and piano. Hmm. Strange combination. Well, all that to say is that we've got a lot of exciting things coming, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. Hey, that's that's great. Thanks for thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Mike. My pleasure. Great. Take care. Thanks. And uh, on tomorrow's show, the 6th of April, we will have uh, Mike McKay from Transamerica. He'll be talking about finances, a little bit different topic than the art museum. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And uh, hope you can uh, take a few minutes out of your uh, Good Friday tomorrow to uh, listen to some of the, the good information that we have for you. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. If you're a salesperson or a company owner, my message is critical for you. Today, I want to talk to you about the real secret of getting out of debt. Earn more money! Most salespeople and owners want to sell more at a higher price with better margins, but don't know how. I've helped hundreds of people and companies grow over 30% per year by making an investment in themselves. Albert Einstein said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I teach my clients new and different strategies, tactics, and behaviors that get dramatic results. I'm not for everyone. I'm tough, expensive, abrasive, and not politically correct. But if you want results, we need to talk. Call me at 513-646-6523. Give me your toughest questions. Then, if you qualify, I'll invite you in for a free meeting. 513-646-6523. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at Mike Roth at rothconsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400.